Well, Pastor Patrick went through the majority of chapter 2 last week talking about the abundance of false teachers that are going to be coming and propagating their lies and their deception in the last days. And now, in verse 20 of chapter 2, the Apostle Peter turns his attention from the false teachers to those that would hear their teaching. Verse 20 of 2 Peter chapter 2. For if they, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and the Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now here it's talking about those that would receive the false message sent by false teachers, by those that would take the truth of the gospel and the reality of Christ and the beauty and inerrancy of scripture and twist that and pollute that, pursuing their own ambitions for their own financial gain, for their own gain of, of status and power and respect. There will be those that can hear those false words, that can receive those incorrect lessons and receive somewhat of a temporary revitalization because of reshaped morals. Because even a lie is best disguised in the truth and even something adjacent to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of Jesus Christ, might be a step in the right direction from where they were. That said, it's good for nothing because they lack the new nature. They might have a new set of morals. They might have a new conviction or commitment to make adjustments in their life, but it's not going to last because they're the same person. There has been no change. You can fix a car, you can put more oil in it, but eventually it is going to break if you do not fix the leak. You can keep it running, you can gingerly get it put putting down the road, but if it's a junk car, it's not going to last. It needs revitalized. And this isn't a concept that's unique to Peter's epistle. We see this very explicitly in the 11th chapter of Luke. Jesus speaking says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Then, or I'm sorry, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So as much as we heard last week about the judgment that false teachers bring upon themselves, those that would listen to their message, those that would hear a, a, a shadow of the truth that these false teachers are spilling out on them, those that would have their lives opened up to the gospel and would then turn away from it, it's, it's not 
a neutral step. They're not standing where they were to come more and more near to Jesus only to not embrace him will then drive you backwards, drive you farther away, and leave you in a worse place than you were when you started. Now, it begs the question, why exactly is that? And Scripture doesn't give us a super clear answer. Is it because having decided ultimately to reject the reality of the one true God are then the morals that you were leaning into cast away and you find yourself engaging in, in sins and deception that, that you would have never entertained when you were trying to be on your best behavior. But that's certainly one possibility. It's also a possibility that there is a very real spiritual reality to this, that having rejected the truth presented before you, that you have laid yourself open for influences from Satan. Either way, we see it time and time again in the Word. And when you're exposed to God's truth and reject it, you're not in the same position that you were. You're worse off. You're worse off. But then we go on to verse 21. For it would have been better not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from a holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now a lot of questions will be asked, is this speaking of believers or unbelievers? When it's talking about apostasy within the church, is this a falling away from the church as a whole or, or uh, a, a, a threshing, the this, this separating, a, a culling, a purification, those that were never part of the church being revealed as such or those that were a part of the church being drawn away? There's a lot of debate. And those are great questions with very, very big answers. Answers to which many good, godly, intelligent people may disagree about. But to look at one thing specifically, here in verse 22, we have the parable of the prodigal pig. Now, many of you are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And just to refresh your memory, this was a parable that Jesus spoke. And a man had two sons. And one son, he came of age, and he went to his father, and he said, Father, I'd like my, my inheritance. Give it to me while I'm young. Let me make some good use out of it. When I get old and fat, I'm just not going to fit in that Ferrari. So if I could, please give it to me now. So he takes this money, and a couple days later, he goes out, and he lives a a young, sinful, worldly life. He has all his money. He uses all that money to seek all the pleasure that he ever imagined he could find if he had this untold wealth. But then the wealth dries up, and it's gone. He finds himself without anything and hungry. He needs to eat. So he ties himself to a man there in this faraway nation where he was living. And this man was a pig farmer. 
and the son said, hey, let me feed your pigs. I'll, I'll eat what they eat. And so there he was feeding the pigs, taking care of the pigs, which in the story, this is a, a Jewish boy. And so not only, I mean, even in our culture, we can understand that being a pig farmer might not be the most enjoyable way to earn a living. But this was absolute sacrilege to a Jew. He would have preferred to get any other job, but pigs were tremendously unclean animals, spiritually speaking. And in Paul's words here, when he says, like a dog returning to his own vomit, or a, a sow having been washed, both of those, unclean animals. So this boy finds himself in the pig pen, living like a pig. At least now he has food in his belly, so in one way, he's better off. He's less hungry than he was when he found himself uh, seeking this position. But when he's sitting there in the pig pen, he has this realization that my father's servants are living better than this. Surely I could go back yonder to my, to my father's house to his palace where he has servants and, and I could just throw myself down, confess my sin. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Just, just let me work here. Let me be your servant. I, I would rather be the lowest of the low here. I understand that I need to pay for what I've done. I've made terrible mistakes. I've, I've squandered the inheritance you've, you've given me, but at, at least let me restart at, at the bottom of this family. So that's where the parable, parable of the prodigal son meets the parable of the prodigal pig. Because there was a pig there in the pig pen, as you would expect. It's a great place to find pigs. And he hears this boy talking out loud about his father's house. And the pig's like, you know what, that, that sounds pretty nice. If you're going that way, you mind if I tag along? And the boy says, well, sure, there's plenty of room. So the boy and the pig go to the father, and sure enough, the boy comes to father, and before he even has a chance to completely speak all of this apology that he's rehearsed, his dad cuts him off and says, hey, you're home. Let's get you washed up. Let's put a new robe on you. And the boy moves aside, and he sees this little pig, and the dad's like, hey, great, you've brought a friend. He goes, okay, get the pig washed up. Let's all go inside and let's have a feast. So the boy, he's, he's washed, he's given a ring. They're sitting at the table and they're having this wonderful feast. And now they've got this clean pig and they've got his tail all nice and curled. It's got a little bow in it and they're sitting there at the table and they're having this fantastic feast. And then they all go to bed and they get up the next day and the party continues and continues. Well, about three or four days into it, the, the, the pig is sitting here and he's getting frustrated. He says, you know, I really don't like sitting at a table and eating with a, a fork and a knife. I don't like sleeping in, in, in clean, dry sheets. I, I miss the mud that kept me warm and kind of coated, and it would get crusty, and then I'd move, and it cracked. It was a great sensation. I, I, I really just, it's like picking a scab for a pig. And he says, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to go back to the pig pen. 
So he goes back. Doesn't matter what he was given. He, he experienced it and he said, ah, this, is, you know, this isn't what I want. And here's the takeaways from it. You know, one person once asked, what would have happened to that boy if he would have died there in the pig pen? And the answer is simple. If you go in that pig pen and you see this boy dead there, that's still a son. That's still the father's son, even though he has died in the pig pen. He has sonship. And if we look at this parable, it doesn't matter if he would have died on his way to the far-off city, there in the far-off city at the height of his wealth, indulging completely in sin, or there in the pig pen with nothing at rock bottom. He was a son, just like we are children of God. In the same way, it doesn't matter if you take this pig and put him in a palace. It's the same nature. And that's so much of the beauty of what we find in the new life we have in Christ. It's not a system of obedience. It's not a new rule book. It's not better directions. Are all those things included? Yes, but the reality is when we accept the sacrifice at the cross, we are given a new life and a new nature. We are no longer pigs. We are sons. And once we are a son, we are a son and a son indeed. And it doesn't matter what you ask a pig to do. It doesn't matter what you tell a pig unless there has been a transformation. Unless there is a new life and a new nature, that pig is going to be a pig. And that son is going to be a son. No matter what limited snapshot you may be looking at of their surroundings and their life. It's a question of nature. So we move on to the third chapter. And Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. This is a wonderful word within the culture in which Peter's writing because this word he uses for reminder, we would associate with things like captivating, gripping. He, he, He doesn't want you to make a note. He wants this to, to be an experience. You, you imagine being stirred up. We've, we've talked about looking at pictures or reliving a memory, not to refresh, refresh the facts in your mind, but to be put in that situation, to be captured, to be made alive. And that's what Peter seeks to do. And so often throughout both of his epistles, he has... He places such importance on eschatology, on things of the end times, and not only eschatology, but the the relation between the end times, the eternal reality, and now. And it's the one way of looking at it is throughout the book of 1 Peter, he speaks so much about the coming good. Like, hey, this is where we are right now, but remember what's coming. Remember the second coming of our Lord, that that would factor in, that that would filter down to, that that would shape your perspective and your understanding and your heart here and now. And here in 2 Peter, he's going to talk much about the coming bad. There is judgment coming upon these false teachers. 
Here in the last days, scoffers will come. We're going to look next week at the day of the Lord. The reality is, it doesn't matter whether we're looking at the good that is to come to us as believers or the bad that is to come that we will avoid by our standing in Christ. Everything pales in comparison to eternity. So it would be short-sighted for us to look at anything, even though it looms so large in our existence and our experience, because how can we possibly convey or understand or really grip what it means to be outside of the bounds of time? Because this is all we know. But all that more important that we continually filter through it and keep it at the top of our minds. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles, and of the, uh, and of the Lord and Savior. So in this second verse, he's, he's called them to remember. He says, I want to stir up your minds by way of reminding you. And specifically right now, I want you to remember the words that were A, spoken in the Old Testament by the prophets, uh, B, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and C, by myself and the other apostles. And it's interesting to note or to think about that here he, he puts this very writing hand in hand with the prophets. So I think there was, there was an awareness of how powerfully the Spirit was working in authoring this scripture even as it was being penned. I mean, that takes boldness to be pay attention to what I'm saying like you would pay attention to the prophets. In chapter 2 of Second Peter, he speaks of the false prophets and what we should avoid. This is what it's going to look like. But now, in verse 2 of chapter 3, he goes, But remember, on the other hand, this is what you're to avoid. This is what you two are. Remember what the prophets have said, what we are saying now, and what is that? What is it that you want me to remember? Verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Now, we should remember those things because it was spoken about in the Old Testament by Jesus Christ himself and by the apostles all throughout the New Testament. That in the last days, there would be scoffers. Peter is saying, you are going to encounter people with an increasing frequency that will come against you and your faith and the beliefs that you hold because of your faith. And if you were surprised, you have forgotten the fact that we have been saying this was going to happen for a long, long time. The prophets said it. Jesus said it. Paul says it in Acts. Jesus says it in Matthew 24. We see it in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Jude. It's a common theme. This, this is not a one-off interaction. 
This is not a sometimes or occasionally. But more and more those that will shake their head, that will come against us, that will say, you have got to be kidding me. Are you really that stupid? That's going to be an increasingly more normal experience. And this is one of the ways it's going to look like, Peter says in verse 4. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is going to be one of their major accusations. One of their arguments against the ridiculousness of the gospel. So you say Jesus is coming back, right? He's going to make everything better. Things are going to get bad, and then Jesus is going to come back. They were saying this 2,000 years ago, and things have only continued to get worse. So if I'm sitting here in Peter's shoes, they have even more of a case now than they did then. But even then, 2,000 years ago, they were making this point. And I understand where they're coming from because we've, 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 we've all interacted with liars and especially young people. And it's always, well, just focus on this thing out of view. I was <laughs> talking with a young man and they're so good at making declarative and absolute statements that are just ridiculous. Oh, yeah, no, my dad has like 500 assault rifles. Like, really, 500? Yeah, 500. You're like, a lot? No, no, like 500. Like a warehouse of them. No, he doesn't. Pyramid schemes is always about What's going to come? Oh, just invest a little longer. Just wait. Fill the pipeline. And it's easy to see from, from the scoffer's perspective how this would be an easy attack. Like, how long are you going to say Jesus is going to come back? Like, isn't that awful convenient? Like, oh, he, he's, he's, he's going to come. He's going to come. Right? It's like, no, no, I have like a really hot girlfriend. She just lives in Canada, and I don't have any pictures with me right now. But Peter says, even in their saying this, because they, they, they say, where is the promise of his second coming? This is just the point of their attack. Let's not be confused. It's, it's, it's not like they agree with everything else and disagree about a literal second coming. This is the manifestation of their attack against the whole thing. Against, specifically, the fact that God would intervene in human history. At, at, at the heart of what they're saying, that's the heart of their argument. Okay. Maybe there is a God, but he does not intervene in the goings-ons of men. 
And how do we know this? Because since everything started, since the fathers fell asleep, since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't matter how far back you go, since they fell asleep, everything's just been kind of unfolding. God does not intervene with the affairs of men. Peter has a threefold response to this. He says in verse 5, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. I read that verse so many times and still don't have a good explanation for why he used those confusing words arranged in that way. But I do have a better understanding of what he's saying. The first argument that he's making is he points towards creation. He says, even you yourself are saying, since the beginning, since earth was created. Do you not understand that that is God intervening in history? That is God intervening in the affairs of men. And here's where things get really confusing. When the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. Let's work backwards, okay? The earth that there was, was flooded. See Genesis, see Noah. That's common. But then we go before that, and even really smart people, scholars, they're kind of like, yeah, this is one of the places. We kind of know some of the things he was pointing out. We look back to Genesis, and we say the earth was without form and void. And then an expanse was made, and the waters were separated from the water, and we know that there, there was a canopy of water that was released from both above and below that caused the flood in the days of Noah. It's not going to get any simpler from here. Here's the moral of the story. Water was really important, okay? It was one used in creation as it was demystified and canopied and then uncanopied. And then that same water flooded the earth. Peter says, that's the second intervention. And specifically, he's using this example because his third example is going to be pointed towards judgment. And that's what the flood of Noah was. And I think this is such an interesting case in, in, in point for Peter, especially in, in, from our perspective today, because of the knowledge that we have, the flood is such a great testimony to biblical accuracy. Because every civilization, whether written or orally passed down, has an account of a flood story. It is not specific to this region. It is not specific to Israel, worldwide, everywhere. 
geological evidence for the flood is literally written on the side of mountains. And that has nothing to do with scripture. That has nothing to do with anything that would be argued about. This is such an attestable worldwide evidence of God's history of intervening with mankind. And then he moves on. He says, and this isn't going to be the last intervention, worldwide intervention. Sitting here today, we're like, man, God intervenes before my feet hit the floor out of bed every morning. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter says, and God will again intervene. And this third time, the means of his judgment will not be water, because he promised not to do that. But it will be fire. He responds, he responds to the scoffers' complaints that you say Jesus is, is coming back. Where is this second coming? Where is this eternal reality unfolding? The millennial kingdom. Him, him coming back and fulfilling the prophecies that the Old Testament speaks so highly of, right? We've seen partial fulfillment. But where, this is what I read in the Bible, this has not happened, so what is this all about? <laughs> Noah says, Noah says, Peter says, A, there is ample evidence of God's intervention in the lives of man. But not only do I want to respond to your criticism, but he wants to give us as believers two reasons, two arguments for the Lord's return. Two encouragements, right? He speaks to us to, to build us up against the attacks of scoffers. But he also encourages us as those that do believe that the Lord is coming, that don't fall victim to the attacks of others, but still we grow older, <laughs> waiting. He says, but, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. It's the first argument, encouragement, for the Lord's return. God doesn't do time like we do. God is outside of the bounds of time. Like I said, there's, there's no way for us to wrap our minds around that outside of a peace that passes understanding that's given to us by God. Sure, we know more about the dimension of time than we ever have, thanks to scientific advancement. 
But it, it doesn't make the years and the decades and the centuries feel really long. We have been in the end times since Christ ascended. They were, they were ready to come back in like two days. <laughs> they saw him go up in the clouds. I want to know how many people just camped there and they're like, he's coming back. He said he was coming back. We believe it. I'll tell everybody I came to. And eventually they're like, okay, well, I'm going I'm to go do some things because I know he's called me to do that. But he's, I mean, the expectancy that they have and that we should still have of the, the eminent return of Christ. When we make a list of, of the things that were waiting to happen before the return of Jesus Christ, I think we have a slide with those listed on there. Oh, no, we don't, because there's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus can come back. <laughs> we're not waiting for anything. Every, every... We, we are merely sitting patiently in submission to His will and His timing. We see in verse, we're like, but why, Lord? Why wait? Scoffers are coming against us. Lord, don't, don't we look foolish here for 2,000 years saying, Jesus is coming back. Lord, vindicate us. Father, fulfill completely your word. Bring your kingdom. Bring your judgment upon the ungodly. Father, what's taking so long? He's, Peter says in verse 9, The Lord is not slack. He's not lazy concerning His promise. The promise of His second coming is some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, not only does God do time differently, but God has grace and mercy and patience like we could never fathom. The only reason God delays is that His grace could be extended to you, to me, to our friends. There's nothing that needs to happen before Jesus can come back. But once He does... There's a lot of things that then can't happen. Jesus comes back today. I'm not going to have any grandchildren. If Jesus comes back today, you're not going to have any. How many greats do I need to include to put everybody out of reach here? Four greats, great, great, great grandchildren in heaven. The days that would be remaining for people to come to a saving faith and the work that he did on the cross, they begin a countdown through the, the tribulation. There's only so many days left of the earth before the great judgment. It's, it's his grace that leaves him waiting. talked a lot about our 
inability to understand how outside of time God is. And I ran across a funny thing, and I, I have to throw out a bunch of notes on this. This is, this is not doctrine. This is not setting dates. This is merely helping us get a grasp of what it would be like if a day to the Lord were a thousand years to us. Now, people, uh, I know I have his name. Hold on. Not people. He's a person. He's a person. He's a bishop. There we go. Archbishop Usher is the one who's most well known for counting backwards from the genealogies that we find in the Old Testament to approximate the date that Adam was created. And many people have verified and double-checked and said, as good as we can know based on the information we have, that's, that's a pretty good guess. And the date they come up with is 4004 B.C. 4004 B.C. So if that's true, man has been on the earth for about 6,000 years. Now it's interesting to think that in biblical numerology, there is a consistent theme that after six days of hard labor, there is what? A Sabbath, a day of rest. After 6,000 years of being subjugated to the curse, of living in a world where dominion has been handed over to Satan, of, of living under the effects of sin. 6,000 years, six days that there would be a day of rest. A thousand year millennial reign, perhaps. There's a very interesting prophecy in Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And the prophet says, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Jerusalem was destroyed, Israel disbanded as a nation approximately 2,000 years ago, shortly after, I, I don't have this, Somebody, any historians want to help me out? It, well, it wasn't at zero. 70? Well, uh, yeah, 70, 72? Okay, thank you. I was like, I'm so close, but I'm lost in my thoughts right now. Israel ceased being a nation in 72. Eight. 70. Now you're just saying numbers. 70, okay. <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> All right, we're back. Jesus dies. 40 years later, 37 
27. Israel ceases being a nation. 2,000 years later, the nation of Israel is reborn in 1948. Something that's never happened before. For a nation to be extinct only to be brought back with its language and people preserved. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Upon Christ's second coming, he will see that the remnant is restored. Not setting dates. Not preaching doctrine. But it's not outside of God's character. He loves numbers. And he's just doing it a week at a time, a day at a time. It doesn't feel that way to us. But let's just always be mindful of his greatness. Not only is he so far outside of the bounds of what we can understand beyond time. He's so much more dialed in to the intimate details of our hearts. To, to the conversations we will have when scoffers come against us. The doubts that will fleet past our mind. The, the discouragement as we sit there and, and say, Lord, please, why haven't you come back yet? And he knows us so well and so intimately that he's faithful to give us that needed encouragement. Saying, look. I'm not lazy when it comes to the promise of my second coming. But I haven't come yet for a reason. You're here for a reason. There's still work to do. I don't want anyone to perish. But if one more person can come to repentance, shouldn't we do it? Shouldn't we work? Isn't that worth waiting? Because there will be a time too when we're outside of time. And we'll look back and we'll shake our little heads. We'll be like, how could I have been impatient? Father, it's so difficult to hold those conflicting truths. We want with all our being, with all of our soul, to be with you. For you to return. To no longer look at you through a mirror dimly, but, but face to face. We want to see your unveiled glory. We want to worship you in eternity. We, we want to be caught up. But Father, we all know people that we love that need you. We know that for every person we know that needs you, there's a million we don't know. Father, thank you that as we walk through this life, we have the security of being your children, of being your sons. So no matter where this world takes us, we can have confidence of the home that we have in you. But Father, we don't want to waste what we have. We don't want to squander it. We want to use it to do your great work, Father. 
Lord, show us personally what that is. Give us the strength and the power to do that all, to magnify the glory of your Son. And the beautiful work, the ability to remake pigs into sons that was purchased at the cross, Father. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.